0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at ExploringMormonThought.com and Facebook.com forward slash ExploringMormonThought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over Chapter 7 in the third volume. And this one, we go over social Trinitarianism. And we just went over the Latin Trinity, and we're talking about, again, the relation of the Father and the Son in general. And also, we've included the Holy Spirit, as is necessary when talking about this type of relationship. So we talked about the Latin Trinity last time, and they're trying to solve kind of the problem from a viewpoint of one being being three. Whereas tonight, we're going to talk about the opposite of that, which is more, how are three beings one? And so there's lots of different iterations of social trinitarianism, but to start out in the chapter you say, the notion of a social trinity characterizes any view that starts with the threeness of the trinity as basic and constitutive, and then attempts to explain how three distinct centers of will and cognitive and connotative faculties can yet be one God. So, kind of just what I said. So. Then you know, I'm sympathetic with social Trinitarianism because it seems to me that the scriptures teach that there is more than one divine individual, yet there is only one governing power manifesting the will of the one God. Yet it seems at the outset that all versions of social Trinitarianism are doomed to failure because if God is a single divine individual, a single person or a personal being, then the persons having such distinct wills and faculties will not constitute such a single individual, however, unless the three persons may be united as one. So the burden of social trinitarianism is to explain how three truly distinct centers of will and consciousness can nevertheless be but one God. So I guess start us out, if you will, with what's kind of the history behind social trinitarianism? When did it rise up and why did it become a, at least in the people that developed its view, a necessary development away from the Latin trinity?
1: Well, obviously there's an argument about that. Those who reject the social trinity would argue that it's a modern development that's been made up by a number of recent philosophers. Social trinitarians argue that it's implicit in the writings of the New Testament, like all trinitarians, and they argue that the Cappadocian fathers who were responsible, primarily Athanasius, for the Nicene Creed and later creeds developed the social trinity. And so there's just a disagreement on that among philosophers. I think the reality is is that the kinds of logical distinctions that we get are certainly not present in the biblical record, and the logical distinctions were not clearly made by the Cappadocians. But I would suggest that all of these views are kind of implicit in all of these sources because they're vague and don't spell out exactly what the modern philosophers have been able to tease out of them. I think the social trinity is strongly implicit in the writings of the Gospel of John and the letters of John, and what we're doing is kind of elucidating in logical terms the word pictures, if you will, that are used by the writers of the New Testament to express their
0: views. All right, well, let me do this quote, and then I'll have a metaphor here. So the quote is, what all these theories that we're going to talk about have in common is the commitment that the one God is identical to the three-person Godhead, as a community or collective of divine individuals. And I'll pause right there just because that's going to be very important later in our Mormon development of a Trinity. And I guess as we go over this, you'll, at least LDS listeners, will probably resonate more with the social Trinity and be like, okay, I see that we believe in some sort of form of this social Trinity, but we're going to go over different views of it and they don't all pan out the same. Anyway, you say these individuals are joined as one because they share a common knowledge of all things a common omni power that is manifest as a unified single act for any act performed by any of them and by their common presence or spiritual influence at all places. But anyway, so you have this metaphor that, you know, I mean, you can use the head of a company, but for LDS listeners, we have a first presidency. So, you know, there are three members of that first presidency, and each individual is a member of that first presidency, but They are not in and of themselves the First Presidency, and they only constitute a First Presidency when all three of them are there. Is there any more expanding on that metaphor? I just wrote that, and I didn't write everything you had in the book, so.
1: It's, I think, an instructive metaphor, but like all metaphors, it breaks down at a certain point, because what each of these, uh, at least those in the tradition, want to assert is that in some strong sense, the First Presidency would have to be one substance. It would have to be one thing in an ontological sense in a way that the First Presidency... The First Presidency is just a name given to the three when they're acting together. And I think that those who adopt a social trinity have more in mind for the nature of the one God than merely a nominal description of the three together. So, you know, while it's a good metaphor, it's not a fully instructive metaphor.
0: That's fine, but at least, yeah, it's a a starting point in... We have a few more metaphors, but to help parse it out, we're going to go over some different views and then what you see as their weaknesses or what makes them untenable. So the people we're going to talk about are all more of the either evangelical or traditional Christian persuasion, you could say. And they have all kind of come to the same conclusion as what you state is like, well, you know, the New Testament and this Trinity thing, as far as like Latin Trinity go, they don't make sense. So let's try to make sense of... What the New Testament says, but they also, at least this first one, also try to sort of stay true to what they came up with in the creeds as well. So, first is Richard Swinburne, and he has his own theory of social Trinitarianism. So, we've talked about him before, and he's pretty famous, but tell us a little bit about Richard Swinburne, if you remind the listeners.
1: Yeah, Richard Swinburne is a preeminent philosopher at Oxford. He's been doing philosophy of religion for five decades. And I think his book, The Coherence of Theism, is one of the best books ever written on the notion of God. His book, Responsibility and Atonement, is is also famous. He's written books on the mind-body problem. He's a top drawer philosopher and theologian, and I think he's good reading. Tough reading, but he's good reading.
0: All right, yeah, you've cited him, and I think mostly probably in the first volume. But yeah, we've cited him before, and I've come across his name a lot in just any modern theories of Christianity. Anyway, so his theory of social Trinitarianism is trying to explain, sort of, from the point of view, I mean, he still has this, you know, traditional god in mind, and also one that creates ex nihilo. So he's trying to come up with why this god would create other beings, or why it's essential. So he argues from what you call essential love being the primary motivator here or you know the you know because the famous scripture that God is love He's like well okay if we take that as the preeminent attribute of God and everything has to fall out from there so his theory is because love is an essential property of God Swinburne argues it follows that the father cannot exist as such without creating both a second and a third divine person so it is crucial to see that in Swinburne's view the father does not create the son or spirit as an act of will but by what Swinburne calls an act of essence. And so, to sum up, he's saying because of his essence that he must love, in order to love, there has to be another person or being or entity, whatever, to love. And so, therefore, he must, of necessity, at all times, beget or create what comes to be the sun, I guess. Eternally, though, so I, I don't know how he parses that part out, of whether one comes first or not, and then i Guess I didn't really get how this, how, why the third comes in. But anyway, if you want to elucidate on that a little bit.
1: Sure. What Swinburne asserts is that the father essentially manifests what he calls self giving love, which means that he creates the son in order to give his love to another and for the son to give that love back. And then there is a second type of love, cooperative love, which requires that these two cooperate essentially to create a third person. Now, what's important to see here is that. He's saying that this act of creation is something that is the essence of God the Father. So what is an essential property? An essential property is something that a thing has and that which it cannot be that which it is. So if you're thinking of a chair, a chair, you know, we would normally think essentially has four legs and something that you sit on. It could be three legs and something you sit on, but at least a chair essentially is something that you can sit on and has the ability to support your weight. Otherwise, it's not a chair. So a chair could not exist unless it had the property of something you can sit on and and able to support your weight. If it didn't have those properties, it wouldn't be a chair. In the same sense, the father wouldn't be the father unless he had these properties of self-giving love and cooperative love. And so Swinburne says that the father creates each out as an active essence. Now, I have to say one of the biggest problems I have with his view is I have no clue what an active essence consists in. I mean, I'm essentially a human being, but the properties that define me and that are my essence already must be manifest for me to exist. And so they have to be explanatorily prior to my existence. And Swinburne redoes these dependence relationships so that the father somehow exists before he has these essential properties that are necessary for him to exist, and that he then manifests this active essence that brings about others separate and distinct from himself and so you know i have no idea what he's talking about and logically it just seems to bootstrap itself in what i would call a vicious logical circle so that it gets the prior explanatory dependence relations backwards which seems you know is a way for me to say swinburne's a genius but it, it just isn't going to hold together for me for uh, at least you know for that reason among others on the other hand let me say this i think what swinburne has captured The Nicene Creed says that the Son is eternally begotten in a sense, that the Son is begotten of the Father. And so what it's pointing to has to be something that is what I would call an asymmetric ontological contingency relationship, meaning the Son's existence depends on the Father for his existence. The Son couldn't exist unless the Father caused his existence to be. We would then say that the son depends on the father and the son would therefore have a different kind of ontological existence than the father, which would be a type of blasphemy according to the creed because there can't be a difference in ontological relations. That was the whole point of the Nicene Creed. They're not different in, in their essence and they're not different in the kind of being they are, so they can't have a different ontological nature of existence. But when we look at it very carefully, what Swinburne argues is that well, the, the father has the same kind of existence as the spirit and the son because they could cause him to not exist because they're both omnipotent and so they can bring about anything they darn well please. And so they could bring about the father's non-existence. So they all have this kind of asymmetric dependence relation to one another. To which I respond, well, how could they do that? In order to bring about the father's non-existence, they'd have to bring about the non-existence of the thing that causes their existence. Therefore, they would cause their own non-existence before they caused the non-existence of the father. And again, he has the explanatory dependence relations backwards. So his argument that they have the same kind of ontological relationship to each other isn't very convincing. It seems to be logically incoherent. There is another problem, and I think it's the biggest problem, and it's a problem that I'm going to find with each of these views. If the father must create the son in order to give his love to the son and for the son to return his love to the father, then he's not really creating out of love at all because if the son must to love him in return as an act of creation and it's a part of the son's essence to love the father, then the father's just manipulating the son into loving him in return. And that's not love, That's, that's just manipulation. And if the father isn't creating of an act of will, if he's not freely choosing to be in relation with the son, how do we really, I mean, we know what love is because as humans, we freely choose to be in relationships with one another and we choose one another. And love can't be coerced, it can't be forced, it can't be something that just happens because you're the kind of being you are. It's a full-blooded choice of your whole soul to love another person. It's the kind of love that the Father and Son can't have for each other, and that the Holy Ghost couldn't have, and they couldn't have for the Holy Ghost, because it follows as a matter of their essence. So it's not a matter of choice. And I have no idea how it could possibly be that it therefore is love in any sense that is recognizable. Now, Swinburne and every single classical Christian, every darn one of them in the tradition will respond, Well, God's such a different being. His love could be very different from ours, which is another way of saying we have no darn idea what we mean when we say that God is loving. You know, but if that's the case, if we have no idea what it means to say that God loves us when we say it, then we're not really asserting anything at all. We have no idea what we're saying, and saying that God loves us is absolutely meaningless. What it does is renders the very central conviction of Christianity that God is love, an absolute place marker where we say that God is X, where X has no cognitive or other content that we could possibly grasp. So God is an absolute total mystery to us, and we have no way of grasping it. But if a child has no idea when he says, yeah, my parents are good, but his parents are good no matter what he does, and it has no meaning, then I would just say that the entire idea of love is vacuous, and, and it just eviscerates any idea of love that has any meaning to it. And that's just an overwhelmingly good reason for rejecting all of
0: these views. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, a lot of these views fall victim to that same issue in the end. But like I said, it's a common one among classical theists. All right, so I guess one other thing with Swinburne's view is you say, the other problem, or another problem is, even God cannot create uncreated gods, and that's the central problem with Swinburne's view as you see it, that's what you put. So, this idea that no matter how you try to explain it with fancy words, if you have one being that is not contingent, meaning, you know, that has to exist out of necessity, and he is creating anything, then those other beings, since they weren't already existing, are now contingent beings, and there's no way around that. And he tries to get around that problem, but as you point out, he doesn't really Get around that at all, because one's still creating the other, and they're relying upon him.
1: I think he engages in a vicious logical circularity, and that is his very central point. Ingenious though it is, it is just an incoherent logical circularity of explanation.
0: All right, great, and then we'll move on to this next view, which is called Trinity Monotheism, and the main people that you're addressing here are William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland. And you've had a lot of exchanges with them over, I think, mostly through what was known as the New Mormon Challenge, which is kind of a book that was written by some evangelicals a while ago. And then you responded to a number of them, along with some other Mormon scholars and such. But anyway, William Lane Craig, very famous guy. J.P. Moreland, I'm not as familiar with.
1: They're evangelical Christians. And... William Lane Craig, I think, has a PhD, which is a doctorate in theology, and two PhDs. I mean, he's a very bright guy, very well-educated. J.P. Moreland is, um, I think, one of the leading theologians, or recognized by many as one of the leading theologians of evangelical theology. Whereas Richard Swinburne is Anglican, this is kind of the attempt of a couple of evangelicals to explain the Trinity.
0: Okay, great. So you say this version of the Social Trinity, which is... Again, promulgated by William Lane Gregg and J.P. Moreland, seems to me, meeting you, a good example of a view that ought to be avoided for numerous reasons. They maintain that the relation of the three divine persons to the Trinity as a whole is the relation of persons to a single shared substance. So you point out right off the bat, the most obvious problem with this assertion is that there are three persons, but only one substance. So this position seems to be either unintelligible or contradictory right from the get-go.
1: Yeah, I mean, beginning, for instance, with Aristotle's view of what a substance is, persons are substances, and by any stretch, when William Lane Craig deals with the mind-body problem, it's very clear that persons are substances, and yet somehow the divine persons are not substances, even though they somehow have this distinct personhood. And so the question is, how are they not substances? And the answer is, when we look at what a substance is, it turns out that they are. And so it turns out we have four substances and not one. We have each of the divine persons, and there's three, and then you have the Trinity in and of itself, which is a substance. So you end up with four substances when you're supposed to only have one. There are a number of other problems with this view, but they they have to do, I think, primarily with the fact that William Lamb Craig also adopts a uh, Canonic Christology. That is where the Son. You know, he he has properties such as he's omniscient unless voluntarily limited in a knowledge. And what he wants to do is, is to argue that Christ remains essentially omniscient and omnipotent, not that he has these, what I would call, potential human divine properties. So, for instance, I'm a human being. I'm potentially fully knowledgeable once I'm fully divine, but I'm not presently fully omniscient. He wants to say, well, Christ remained essentially omniscient and omnipotent, um, but the divine aspects of Jesus' personality were largely, he says, largely subliminal during his state of humiliation. What he means is that, that Christ was omniscient, he just didn't know it, which I think is one of the most absurd statements a person can make. Or, Or take this, Jesus as a human being is truly omnipotent. He just didn't discover it. But surely as a little boy, Christ would have discovered that no matter how far he tried to leap, he could leap it. I mean, he comes on a puddle and he leaps over it. He comes to a large river and leaps over it. He comes to a lake and leaps over it. Sooner or later, it's going to dawn on him. It's like, oh my gosh, well, you know, it never dawned on me, but I'm God. I can do anything I want. I just don't see how these kinds of properties can remain subliminal and unknown by a person who's a human being. So I think that the primary problem that they have is that what they've given us is just internally incoherent. But the other problem is anytime we start to look at Christology and what Christ is in relationship to the other two divine persons, they have to start gerrymandering you know, what the divine properties are in a way that turns out to just be nonsense. And so, I don't see how they can square their Christology with the view of the Trinity that they elucidate, and I don't think that their view of the Trinity really captures either what the creeds had in mind, and, and certainly not what any of the scriptures have in mind.
0: All right, and again, I guess, kind of back up, like, we, I I don't feel like we've actually explained their view yet fully, so, not fully, but at all, so that we know what we're talking about. So, we've out some problems. So, other than there are three beings that share substance, what else... Does their view consist of? Because I don't even know what that means, or is that the problem right there?
1: Well, that is a part of the problem, is that unless you quote them at length, it's hard to summarize a view when it turns out your summarization appears to be internally incoherent merely in the summarization. But I'll just read a little bit of what they say. I say now, God is very much like an unembodied soul. Indeed, as a mental substance, God just seems to be a soul. We naturally equate a rational soul with a person, since the human soul's With which we are acquainted are persons but the reason human souls are individual persons is because each soul is equipped with one set of rational faculties sufficient for being a person suppose then that god is a soul which is endowed with three complete sets of rational cognitive faculties each sufficient for personhood then god though one soul would not be one person but three for god would then have three centers of consciousness intentionality and volition so social Trinitarianism is maintained. God would clearly not be three discrete souls because the cognitive faculties in question are all faculties belonging to just one soul, one immaterial substance. God would therefore be one being which supports three persons just as our individual beings support one person. Such a model of Trinity monotheism seems to give a clear sense to the classical formula three persons and one substance. But what it really seems to do is confuse what it is to be a soul and confuses what it is to be a substance.
0: Yeah, so I, I guess when you when you read that it just seems like, well, let's define God by defining the things that you understand as a human in a way that, will just describe it in a way that you can't even possibly understand because we're defining a soul as something that no longer meets the definition that we have understood.
1: Yeah, or a substance. I mean, they, they want to deny that persons are substances even though they have all the properties of persons and admit that human persons are substances because that's how we normally think about it but for some reason these persons aren't because they have just one soul as their underlying substance it's just unintelligible to me i can't make any sense of what they're asserting except to assert that what they're asserting is just internally incoherent but i wanted to read that to you so that you could see that the criticism i'm making isn't you know i'm not being over the top or uncharitable to them that is their position and when you look at it, is you know, I get through reading that, and I'm like, you, I just go, what? So anyway, that that's how I see it. And and I just that when you interface it with Christology, it just uh, I'm just wondering these guys are very bright and they're very good. And William Lane Craig is a very careful thinker. He really is. And so I just kind of shake my head when I read this kind of thing because it's like, really, you didn't see the problem with that? <laughs>
0: Yeah. I and I like where you kind of point out again with the Christology, you're like, you know, if someone is still omniscient, but they don't have access to that knowledge, then they're not really omniscient anymore, are they? Because you have to have access to the omniscient knowledge to meet the definition.
1: Well, you could have you could have knowledge without having it occurring to you. I mean, it may be that you know the Pythagorean theorem, but you're not presently thinking about it or conscious of it. And so you could recall the Pythagorean theorem if you wanted, so it may not be in your present consciousness, but so what? <laughs> I mean, the fact is, is if you're omniscient and you know everything, one of the things you would have to know is that you're forgetting that you're omniscient. And so it it just doesn't make sense to me, I have to admit.
0: All right. Well, let's go on to this third view then, it is titled Perichoretic Monotheism, and the view is promulgated by Stephen Davis. So I guess, what does perichoretic mean, and who is Stephen Davis?
1: This is a view I like very much, and Stephen Davis is a is a friend of mine. I consider him a friend. I've, I've had numerous conversations with him. He, he was kind enough. I wrote him. I sent him a copy, and, and Swinburne did too. I want to point out, when I was writing this, I sent both Swinburne and Stephen copies of what I had written about him, and both were kind enough to respond. I have still the letters that they wrote to me. And when I first wrote this, I had majorly misunderstood Swinburne's position. And so he wrote and corrected what I was missing. And when I went back and reread him, I was like, well, yeah, I just completely missed him. And so I reassessed it and then came back and said, boy, it still doesn't work. And then with Stephen Davis, I gave him what I wrote and I didn't change anything after he wrote me a letter saying, well, I added what he said because I wanted his response to my criticism, but both were kind enough to respond. I mean, in terms of academic circles, I'm a huge nobody. I don't teach at a university. It's not like I hold any endowments and don't have a lot of money to give out to people to do seminars and stuff like that. So. There's no reason that they had any reason to respond to me, but both very kindly did. And I want to acknowledge that. And I think it gives an idea also what kind of men these are. They're good men. And, I, you know, I want people to understand that. So that's who Stephen Davis is. He teaches or taught at Claremont and is a top-notch philosopher. He has a chapter in a book called "In Encountering Evil, which I think is one of the best attempts at a theodicy by an evangelical that I've seen. He wrote an article on essential properties, God's essential properties, and denied essentially the theory of essential properties, which I think is the right move to make, but he later kind of went back on that. In other words, he wrote this very brilliant article that I thought was a a real beacon of of intelligence and genius, and then he kind of backtracked from his genius, I guess is what I'm saying. But he's a very good man, and I, I think that people could benefit by reading what each of them have written.
0: All right, so you say the paracritic view denotes a view of the social trinity where the divine persons indwell in each other. So I guess I just had to keep reading to get the definition. Perichoresis means to dance in harmony and love in oneness. They share their life's energy, glory, and spirit in such a way that they literally live their lives in each other.
1: Yeah, so think of it like this. Think that you've got, and we can actually do this, think that you have this kind of electric field and you've got a a device that operates by electricity, and all it has to do is enter into this electric field and it has sufficient energy to run. And so there's this kind of electric field that they all share to give power to their lives. And so they all generate this electric field together, they all share their life's energy together, and they all share their love with each other. But it's not just sharing it. They actually are in each other, you know, so the photons of, of the light are going in and out of them and penetrating them, and they generate this electricity and give it to each other, and then the, the others take it, magnify it, and send it back. And so they're sharing their lives literally in each other. And I think that Davis is drawing in part on the notion of an energy. This is a very important idea in Greek Orthodox theology the energies and so it's the, the divine persons are sharing this life energy it's it's kind of a type of vitalism if you will where there is this vitalistic force that they share and and it, they live their lives in each other because of that but it goes beyond that they also have absolute openness to each other's minds so that what one knows all of them know and so there's no thought that one has that the others aren't aware of and there's no act that they do that they're not in complete agreement and doing in unison as one And so that's perichoretic monotheism.
0: All right. So you say it's important to see how Davis's perichoretic monotheism responds to objections to social Trinitarianism in general that have been asserted primarily by a person named Brian Leftow.
1: Brian Leftow is at, I believe it's Oxford, and has been there for some time, and and he's one of the leading philosophers of religion there. He's written many books on divine timelessness.
0: All right. And then? The first criticism he lays forth is that the divine persons in social Trinitarianism suffer from a diminished deity such that only the Trinity as a whole can claim to be fully divine.
1: Yeah, so look at like the Trinity monotheism. There are three persons and they each have these distinct minds, but it's really only the Trinity as a whole, the one substance that is God and is divine. The divine persons aren't, aren't really divine, <laughs> okay? Or we have this kind of dependence relationship where one has a type of ontological existence of necessity and the others kind of depend on that one. And so one has a diminished divinity because they have a kind of dependence on an uncreated being. And so they're not really the same kind of being. And so that's the kind of thing that out is getting at.
0: Okay. And then a metaphor for that, I guess, people that grew up in the 80s at least have is some cartoons like Captain Planet or Voltron. Captain Planet, if you'll remember, there's like a bunch of kids, and they each have these rings that have different elements on them, like fire, wind, water, and stuff like that. And when they combine their powers, they create a new entity called Captain Planet. So each of them has some power on their own, but only together do they create this new entity. And it's, I don't know, I kind of picture what he's getting at in his criticism of the Social Trinity is that it's like, well, I mean without each other, they're they don't have this superhero. He's non existent unless they all come together. So
1: Yeah. But Davis would respond that in his view, each of the divine persons exists essentially. That is, they're all three uncreated. All three divine persons are equally divine, and they form one divine unity and act in unity as a as one God because of the perichoretic indwelling of life glory and energy that they have in one another and that's what it means to say they're one god it doesn't mean that they are just ontologically one being what it means is that they necessarily know all things in common they necessarily act in unity and they necessarily are co-present at every place in the universe together equally and i think that that is an adequate response to left concern
0: so you said Davis also affirms that an essential aspect of the Trinity is to deny that the Father is God in any stronger sense than the Son or the Holy Ghost is God. He also asserts that a robust notion of ontological oneness among the persons is mandatory for Christians.
1: Yeah, and and here's where we get into, at least we start to see some cracks in what I think Davis is saying. When he talks about an ontological oneness, what it means is that they must be one. They indwell in each other, and they love each other, but they couldn't fail to indwell in in each other and love each other. So ontologically, they're just one being. We get back to the notion, I think, of kind of an essence that they share. And so what they are is one being in a strong ontological sense that they couldn't possibly be what they are unless they were in this kind of a relationship with each other. He doesn't elucidate it in terms of the logical relationships as clearly as Swinburne does, but to me it's very clear that that's what he has in mind.
0: What part of Swinburne's theory are you referring to there?
1: Well, this is what Swinburne says, and what he's referring to is is Swinburne affirms, you quote, an essential aspect of the Trinity is to deny the Father is God in any stronger sense than the Son or the Holy Spirit. And he says that because, quote, a robust notion of ontological oneness among the persons is mandatory for Christians, And quote. What ontological oneness means, because the oneness is ontological, it means that it is necessary in a strong ontological sense. Their oneness is ontological, which means that they couldn't fail to be one. They couldn't fail to be that. He doesn't explain exactly the logical relationships or why that's the case. He simply asserts it. But what he's asserting, I think, is clear enough, and that is that ontologically they're just one being in the senses that they share a life's energy. If they didn't share a life energy, none of them would be what they are. And so, it, the the bottom line is, I I think he answers left out. What it does is opens up another problem, uh, as we'll see shortly.
0: Okay. And so, yeah, another problem that left out points out is he argues that positing co mingled minds which is kind of what he's saying here, you know, like they're diff- they're one in each other, literally. So positing commingled minds which have full access to knowledge of each other does not allow for distinct minds. So Davis answers that mental states of the divine persons are distinct because only the Father knows, for example, I begot the Son, and only the Son knows I was begotten by the Father. So, while the divine persons know in common all general and public truths, such as 2 plus 2 equals 4, and gold is heavier than helium, they do not share first-person reflexive knowledge of the type, I physically suffered in atoning for sins, which is only true of the Son, and not of the Father and the Spirit.
1: Yeah, so what he's saying is there are certain properties. So, if there is a public truth that isn't unique to personal knowledge of one's own identity, or what is inherent in one's own and I'll use this term one's own thisness, then that's known by all three of them equally. But to the extent that you have a first person reflexive property, a first person reflexive property is like I am the father of Cory Osler. No other person could be your father. I am. But that's only true of me because of I am in fact the being that is your father. Nobody else can say that. And I'm the only one who can know that from a first-person perspective because it's true of me and me alone. But the notion that Korya Osler is a great father, that's public knowledge. It's the kind of thing that can be known by other persons other than me. So what he is saying is that of a logical necessity, first-person reflexive propositions can only be known by the person by one person. That's the person who knows them of him or herself as part of their own identity. So it's no problem that the first persons have this kind of distinct knowledge as long as they have all third-person knowledge in common. And I think that is an adequate response to Leftow's argument that they're not really distinct minds. They are really distinct minds, and they have a distinct identity. So I, and I think his answer is sufficient to answer
0: Leftow. All right. Okay, but then you point out a problem that he doesn't overcome, and you said that the decisive problem with Davis's view is that the divine persons cannot choose not to love each other and therefore cannot really choose to love each other With the highest kind of love at all, as and you say, you argued that in volume two, which you know we've gone over, listen to those podcasts; they're great. You said there is a kind of love that entails that the beloved is free to say no to the other. We value this kind of love over necessitated love. So you're saying that in his view, because these minds are essentially whatever you know, together that. They can't fail to love each other. Therefore, at least what you write is that basically it's kind of self-love in the end.
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem to really be a form of love at all. Because what happens again is that, at least for Swinburne, he creates the son so that the son must, of necessity, love him in return. That's obviously a form of manipulative love. But this is a type of love where they simply love each other, and we don't have a reason why they love each other. simply asserts that they do, of necessity. And I know what it means to say a person simply loves, you know, they love each other with indwelling love of necessity, and it's an ontological. It's given in their being. They couldn't be the being that they are unless they loved each other of necessity. The problem I have with that is that, again, this seems to be a kind of love by definition that's just given, and that's not what love is at all. Love is an activity. It's a freely chosen activity. At least to the extent that we can understand love as human beings, and I suggest that if we can't, then it's a completely vacuous idea. The kind of love that we're talking about doesn't measure up to what we have in mind as the highest kind of love. The highest kind of love is not something that's necessitated. If I were forced to love you, or if I simply loved you because I'm a human being, just say it's it's given in me. I can't fail to love you at all. Then what we're saying is that I haven't really chosen you to be, you know, with my love because. I choose to out of my being and because as a you deserve my love. You're worthy of love. And so we devalue both the lover and the loved. You know, and I've argued for this at length in volume two about the nature of coercive love and or love of necessity or love by definition. And I've gone over the logic of love. I have a long section on that in the second volume. And when I elucidate the agape theory of ethics, that's the kind of love that we're talking about. I can't make any sense of the assertion that a being loves another being of ontological necessity. I don't know what that means. I know what love is when human beings love each other. I have no sense at all what it could possibly mean, and it doesn't really seem to be any kind of love that's cognizable to me. But Davis was kind enough to respond, and I quoted him in my book.
0: Yeah, and so he says, Who says that love that is freely chosen is superior to love that isn't chosen? I can make at least some sense of this claim as concerns human love, but who says it equally applies to divine love?
1: And then I respond, so, you know, we're, we're back to the same argument. God is just so different from us. When we say that God loves us, we have no idea what we're talking about. And we must mean something quite different than when we speak about human love. But I have an, another argument other than that just leaves the notion of the, asserting that God is love as vacuous. And, you know, just asserting nothing more than God is X, where X has no cognitive content. The scriptures actually give us content to the kind of love that God has. We've been commanded to love others in the very same sense that God loves us. You know, for instance, as the Father has loved me, so I also love you, John 15 and 9. As I have loved you, love one another, John 13 and 34. Over and over again, the Gospel of John is asserting is that the divine love is the model of human love, and that we're asked to love in the very same way that God loves, and John 14 through 17 makes the divine love of the divine persons for each other the same type of love they're asking us to share with them and with each other. So the love command suggests that the divine love is not a different kind of love than love humans have for one another or that we're commanded to have for God, and that is why Jesus bids us to love one another as he has loved us. It is divine love that makes us one with each other so that we are conformed to the image of God, and it's the very kind of love, read John 17 again, it's the very kind of love that makes us one with the Father as they are one with each other. I'll say that again. It's the very kind of love by which we love one another that makes us one with them and each other just as they are one. This is the Johannine notion underlying the love command and the kind of divine love that we're commanded to have and... The kind of love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. So I would just say that the notion that Davis gives us just has no cognitive content. It's a vacuous assertion and it strongly contradicts the kind of love that the Gospel of John is speaking about. That is the very basis of his view in the first place.
0: Yeah, and again, a lot of people are kind of moving towards this view and kind of strapping God in with this essential loving nature, if you will. I don't know, I've talked to you a bit, but i read a book that i mean i like most of the ideas from an author named thomas j ward and he has a basically a process view but he tries to deal with the problem of evil saying that well let's start from this that god is essentially loving i mean he can't not love therefore he has to let all the entities or he has to love them basically so that's why he can't necessarily control things so because he has to give this love and that's one of my main problems like well Sounds like he's a slave to love, where he's saying, I want to help you, but I just love so much. Out of like, it, it turns love from, you know, this beautiful thing into a shackle if you try to chain someone up with essentially love that prevents you from doing what you would actually do if you were free. So,
1: and here's what it takes from love. It takes away from love the element of love that is gift, love as an expression of our full choice to be in a relationship and of the gift of ourselves as a free gift. Because when we love another, we give ourselves to another. And so the bottom line is that it's taking us out of loving. We're not really involved in the loving at all. Yeah, I love you, but I'm not really involved in anything that has to do with that love and so it's just not love. It lacks the very personal element that is essential to love in the first place, and this is a move that is made so common. It's made almost every time I speak with a classical or traditional Christian. God is so different from us, we just have no idea what we're talking about. That It's always where I end up with them. After I demonstrate that their view's just not going to cohere together, it's like, well, it really doesn't matter because nothing makes any sense anyway because you can't understand God And at that point, I'm just looking at him and saying, well, if nothing makes any sense, why are you using words? Why are you even speaking with me? Because if nothing makes any sense and you have no coherent sense, you can't make an argument. You can't use logic. You can't use words in any way. Now, that's not to say that there's not a lot about God that escapes us. I think we have to admit that. But to the extent that God escapes us, we must remain silent. And the scriptures don't remain silent about God's love at all. The bottom line is is I think we have a very good idea what love is. We know what it means to be loving, and we feel God's love. We know what it is to be chosen by God as his chosen people. We know what it is to be chosen by God as his, and we know what it is for us to choose God, to choose to give ourselves heart, might, mind, and strength wholly to God. That's the kind of love we're talking about, and it's that precise nature of gift in love that is denied by this approach to saying that the divine persons necessarily love one another and can't fail to do so. And I agree with you. I see it as a kind of shackle, but I see worse than that. I see it as a denial of the very most important facets of, of the very kind of love we're talking about, and therefore a denial of the very essence of Christianity.
0: All right, and I mean you've pretty much touched on this, but your last section here is reveling in mystery, and we've already started talking about that. So, so as opposed to this love aspect in general, you're talking about, the, back to the Trinity. So, like, so, what's left for the traditional Christians in light of the, the contradictions entailed in the doctrine of the Trinity? The most common response in dealing with the Trinity is that we are attempting to understand the inner life of God, which is so far beyond us that we should expect it to be a mystery and one that appears contradictory to us. And so some people say it only appears to be a contradiction and then others will accept, like, yeah, it's an outright contradiction as far as humans understand, but doesn't have to make sense. Let's just have it be a contradiction and somehow be okay with it. I
1: want to acknowledge there's something true in this response, and that is that there are some things that are just beyond us. I think we have to have a robust humility about the limits of our cognitive capacities. On the other hand, I think that when it comes to experientially understanding what's involved in love and being able to see what's most important in love, and when the scriptures command us how to love and what love consists in, we can see that the notions of the Trinity that they've come up with don't begin to match up to the notion of love that's expressed in the New Testament writings. And that, in my view, is more than sufficient reason to just jettison and say, yep, we've wound up at a place where every notion of the Trinity and traditional thought that we've reviewed shows that there is a huge gap. There is this huge problem right at the very center of Christianity that just collapses in on itself. And so the notion of the Trinity loses any real power or sense in the Christian life. Instead of being a motivation for humans to love one another with full gift love, with where we give our heart, mind, and strength everything that we are to God and to each other, we end up just saying, yep, have no idea what I'm talking about here, and it just has no real meaning to me. And I think that's the real problem of the Trinity in Christian thought. I think it's lost all meaning and has no power in Christian lives when it ought to to be the very greatest expression of the highest, most valuable thing we can possibly imagine that urges us on and gives us our purpose of life. And may I conclude, that's the power of Mormonism. Mormonism restores the ability to talk about being invited into the divine relationship by loving each other as God loves us and as the divine persons love one another. To me, that's the ultimate expression of Christianity, and the fact that I believe that Mormonism makes that kind of assertion not merely coherently possible, but puts it in a a full context where love can then become the very purpose of our existence and the call to us in every moment of our lives. That, to me, is the essence of Christianity.
0: All right, great. And yeah, next chapter goes over the Mormon view of the Godhead or Trinity, so look forward to that. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.